Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Good morning. Bartimaeus, huh? Bartimaeus is a pretty interesting name. I met him when we were studying together in third grade. He was intelligent, teacher's pet. He could pick out the math problems and the finer points of uh, Hebrew riddles better than anyone in class. Bartimaeus was a good friend. But he had this weird name, Bartimaeus. Bar means son in Aramaic, and he was Jewish. And Timaeus is a Greek name that comes from Plato's paper about the nature of light. And all of us in class could never really relate to that. We just couldn't understand why his parents would name him an Aramaic and Greek name when he was a Jewish boy. But we grew up together, and he was this fun-loving and intelligent boy who, in the end, I didn't mention he was an orphan, did I? Yeah, we don't know what happened to his parents, but he was an orphan, and uh, but he was a really outgoing and great guy, and I think he was raised by an aunt or, or his grandmother or something. I don't really know. He studied under a shoemaker in Jericho, and he learned his craft. He was really good at it. He, um, he made a career out of it and did well for himself. He was well known in Jericho as a social and outgoing guy, good guy with a weird name, Bartimaeus. I like to call him Bart. And uh, but something happened to Bartimaeus. He had a rare genetic disorder that made part of his eye, his cornea, in the future me knows that it's his cornea, detaching from his eyeball. And uh, he slowly went blind as a young adult. And uh, the doctors couldn't do anything for him. And he was, he was sliding into not being able to work. And one thing led to another so that he couldn't work. He couldn't repair or or uh, uh, design shoes anymore. He lost his shop because he couldn't make his rent. He lost his job and his craft because, of course, he couldn't uh, work or take care of finances or other things that a blind person is challenged to be able to do in our time. I felt really bad for him, and I occasionally gave money to him because he was my childhood friend. Bartimaeus... uh, when he lost his job, he lost his place to live, and really lost the life that he had built for himself, was licensed by the Roman administration to beg. They gave him a special tunic, a robe that one puts on that is a kind of license to beg on the streets, a kind of authority from the government saying, this is a legit guy that we should all have pity on and support. So Bartimaeus spent his time now begging on various street corners. One day, this guy named Jesus came into town. He was walking. He was like on a boys' trip with his guys. And they were walking from uh, one part of Palestine towards Jerusalem. And they, as they came to Jericho, there was, there was a lot of talk about it because this guy Jesus is kind of a disruptor. And at the same time that he creates hope in people and he does amazing things for and with people, 
he also causes some fear because he's disrupting the political and the, the, the cultural norms everywhere he goes. But there's a lot of excitement about this guy. Bartimaeus had heard about this guy, heard about Jesus, and heard that uh, he was coming to town. And so Bartimaeus ran to the gate, the main gate, where Jesus would be entering with James and John and, and other disciples who were on their way to to Jerusalem. And as they came and he heard them, he started shouting, Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. Please listen to me. And Jesus didn't hear him. There were like hundreds, if not thousands of people swarming around because this guy was so famous. And actually he had just told his disciples that he was on his way to get killed. So everyone was curious. Everyone wanted to know what was going on. Bartimaeus was a blind dude sitting on a corner and, you know, nobody's paying attention to the blind dude on the corner. I felt sorry for him. So I ran over and I helped Bartimaeus stand up and I walked him to the front of the crowd. And as if on cue, Bartimaeus said, Jesus, son of David, stop. Listen to me. I beg you. And, and then some of his disciples heard him. I think Jesus may have heard him too, but there was a lot going on. Some of the disciples heard him, and they went over to me and Bartimaeus. My name's Steve, by the way, Stephen. And, and they go over to Bartimaeus, and they say, God, you've got to be quiet down, man. This is upsetting. Jesus is this important guy, and he's on an important mission to save Palestine and perhaps the whole world. He doesn't have time to deal with beggars. Now, the guy who said that, I found out later, <laughs> just like some minutes before this happened, he had told Jesus that he wanted to sit on the right or the left-hand side of the throne. And when Jesus asked, what do you want? That was his answer. I want to sit either on the right or the left. What a joker, huh? <laughs> it's like, give me a break. Anyhow, this guy who wants to be like King Kong of the Jesus world, he comes and tells Bartimaeus, a guy who really deserves the attention of someone who may have almighty power, he tells Bartimaeus to shut up and sit down and go back to his begging. And Bartimaeus says, no. And he pushes James and John away, sons of thunder who want to sit on the right or left, and says, Jesus! I'm talking to you. Come here. I beg you, son of David, the greatest figure in all of history, pay attention to me. And that's Jesus. He, get, he sees Bartimaeus. And he pushes through the crowd and he pushes James and John to the side. And I can just imagine what's going through his head then. And he, he looks at him and he looks into his eyes blind but there nonetheless and he looks at him and Bartimaeus says please have mercy on me and Jesus asked the most outrageous question ever asked <laughs> he asked this blind beggar what he wants what do you want can you fire up the slideshow please I forgot to start with that in all my excitement about Bartimaeus. Jesus asked this guy, what do you want? And I was kind of struck by that question. Like, what do you think I want? 
I want a million dollars, hot food on the table, my shoe store restored, and my blindness gone. And I think Jesus could have seen that, right? And I'm sure he did. But he asks him, he looks deep into his eyes, and he says, look at me. What do you want? And it's kind of a sublime moment. There was a hush in the crowd. You know, this guy that's the most famous figure in Palestine, everyone's either afraid of him or in love with him. This guy asked this blind beggar what he wants. And what does Bartimaeus say to that question? He digs down into his deepest soul. And he doesn't say, I want a million dollars. He doesn't say, I want my shoe store back. I want my life back. I want a nice cozy bed to sleep in. No, what I want really of all things is my sight back. I want to see. I want to see and I want it bad enough to demand it from you. I want you to stay right here until that miracle happens. And Jesus says, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you, which I found really bewildering. It was a strange statement. But all of a sudden, cornea miracle happens. Bartimaeus opens his eyes and can see. He pulls off his begging cloak, his license to beg, throws it aside, and starts jumping around like a lunatic, screaming that he can see, he can see, he can see. This miracle has been done. My deepest desire has been met with God's power. I can see. Living in this passage for the past month, since Melissa told me this was your next verse, has been really interesting for me. Trying to jump into the story of Bartimaeus and Jesus and the disciples as they're walking towards Jerusalem in the final days of the life of Christ. And as I read it, I, I had different observations of the text. You know, Jesus asking questions was one interesting thing. Why does he ask a question? He did it all the time. And I came to the conclusion he does it to disrupt assumptions. We make assumptions about reality, assumptions about how things have to be. We are conditioned to believe in a certain way. And here comes this rabbi into town, and he asks this bewildering question or answers a question with a bewildering statement and another question. He's constantly moving it from, give me the answer or the knowledge that I need to, oh, what do I actually think about that? What's actually going on here? And when I look at the question thing of Jesus, there were, according to the commentators, 337 questions that Jesus asked. He answered like eight of them. <laughs> Which led me to the conclusion, the interesting conclusion that questions are more important than knowledge. Let that fly around in your head for a while the doubt you might feel, the things that are strange for you about this life of faith, the ridiculous statement that your faith has healed this blind guy and now everything's cool and you can go back to shoemaking. This is a question. This is not simple. And if we apply this miracle to our life, if we apply it to here and now, what do we do with that? 
How many of you have pre- prayed for your sick son or daughter at night and she or he is shaking and you don't know what to do? Or worse, you've prayed for someone on their deathbed and all of a sudden, bam, they're dead. Or worse, you pray for someone early stage cancer who has every reason to recover. But no, they don't make it. What do we do with all of these times when the math that appears to show up in scripture with healing doesn't apply to the life that we live here now? What do you do with that? Welcome to the mystery. Nobody can answer it. Unless you go to a Pentecostal church (laughs) and you won't stay there long. You know, like, this passage really stirs some things up. If you look closely at it, it's upsetting if you apply it to today. Then Jesus comes along and he says, what do you want? Knowing the answer full well, Jesus, a wisdom teacher, son of man, son of God, shows up with you know, the, this, incredible, this incredible latent store of knowledge and wisdom and life and love, changing the world around him in three years, upsetting all of human history. <laughs> King of disruption. What do you want? And so I asked Jesus to ask me what I want. Have you done that? I mean, we have all done it in different ways and we've all begged for it. God, I want this. I need this. I wish for this. Would you please provide this? Right, we all do that? Well, I did it again. I mean, I've been a Christian since 86 and I've probably done it like 10,000 times a year, but I thought, what the heck, one more time. (laughs) I said, Jesus, talk to me. What do you want? Ask me, what do I want? And so I chewed on that for a long time. What do I want? And of course, the obvious things come out, like I want my daughters to be happy and successful and find great men to marry and live a wonderful life. I want that. I have three daughters, 26, uh, 24, and 21, and I want the best for them. I give anything for it. Of course, this is an obvious thing we all want, right? Right? I want my marriage to be great. I want my wife to be just the happiest woman in the world. We've been married for 31 years. It's a miracle that she put up with me this long. And all I really want is for us to love life together and for her to feel satisfied for her place in it. And I get to be a part of that. Yeah, of course I want that. We all want that. But in the context of this, I don't have a debilitating, well, I have type 1 diabetes. I could ask for a new pancreas. But what I decided I would ask for is what I've been asking for for um, since October 1994. Jesus says, what do you want? And my answer is on the next slide. I just want one little girl. This little girl I met in a refugee camp. My wife and I hiked into this refugee camp with 9,000 refugees living in it. In 1994... And we made friends with a woman named Rose who was a widow and had two young children of her own. Her husband died a tragic death because of the war in Burma. And we were visiting Rose and on the bamboo floor of her hut, surrounded by 9,000 other refugees, was a four or five-year-old little girl sleeping on the floor. And we said, Rose, what's, who's this little girl? And she said that 
pro-democracy soldiers, the, the KNLA, Karen National Liberation Army, went to a village, a Karen village that had been attacked by the Burma army, looking for survivors and to document what happened. And they found one survivor. That doesn't mean she's the only one who lived. When, the, when these villages are attacked, then all of the civilians, all the villagers run off into the jungle to try and hide. And, and, and yet, they found one survivor. Among the dead and among the destroyed village, they found one survivor, and that was this four-year-old little girl. And she said that it's very likely that uh, her loved ones were being pursued by the Burma army. They were probably carrying her, knowing that they would be caught. They did what you would do as a parent. You saw a good hiding place. Hide your child. Hide your little girl. Shh. Don't say a word. We'll come back. And then you run like whatever and try and get the soldier's attention away from your little girl, right? Rose said that's very likely what happened. And then the Karen uh, soldiers who went to document what happened, they found this little girl. They picked her up and carried her for a couple days across the Moy River into Thailand from Burma. They walked up the Shoklo stream to Shoglo refugee camp to a woman they had heard of named Rose who started a day program because she's a teacher. She started a day program for kids and she, they took this little girl to Rose and they said, would you care for her? Would you be her foster parent? Because we can't. And Rose said what you would say, which is... <laughs> Heck yeah, I'll take that little girl. She needs somebody. I'll take her. So Rose took this four-year-old little girl without a plan other than this vulnerable life is now my precious life to care for. And we heard this story, and she looked up at us after telling us this story, Rose did, and said, would you help me help kids like this because it's happening all the time in my country, in Burma. This civil war at the time had resulted in six million internally displaced refugees, Six million people on the run from their own government because of where they were born or the minerals or, or, or uh, extractables that are under where they were born. That's their sin. Six million people at the time. I think that year it was documented by Human Rights Watch that more than 350 villages had been burned to the ground with evidence, satellite imagery. This little girl's one of the survivors. And so she said, would you help me? And we said what you would say, which is? <laughs> what are you going to say? Would you want a, stricket, a ticket straight to hell? <laughs> I mean, you have to say yes to that. This is, by definition, what the Ten Commandments are about. I don't know if you remember this, but Moses says that the spirit of the Ten Commandments, after he gives them, is the widow, the alien, the orphan, and the poor will be protected and loved. To the degree that they are cared for, to that degree is the spirit of the Ten Commandments, God himself, uh, a part of your community. And then on, if you go through the Old Testament, that whole quartet of the vulnerable is an undeniable central feature, red thread through this book we call the Bible. And so we said yes, and uh, that yes resulted in a $30 commitment for one year. We committed $30 to supporting that first little girl. 
And uh, that turned into, by 1998, we had um, 1,200 children in homes that we were supporting, kids just like that first little girl, in eight refugee camps. So from 1994 to 1998, 1,200 children. And my point here isn't, wow, I'm so great. It was, it's not that at all. <laughs> my point is, watch out when you say yes. You might get your sight. I'm not kidding. I mean, we don't know how to talk about this stuff, but crazy stuff happens. And, and when you really dedicate yourself to something, you can expect that the energy of the world, God himself who holds all things together, is interacting in that choice. And you can expect that to grow. That is my experience. And so we built a team and we called it Partners Relief and Development. And there are 65 full-time staff on that team now, helping about a half a million uh, families who are victimized by war every year. And it's a wonderful thing that we were a part of. But you say yes, and things snowball. And I thought of it this morning. I, I thought, well, you know, some, there's some really great applications here. I saw uh, a really sad old man last night who was kind of like in the middle of homeless and not. I don't know what he was, but he wasn't drunk and he looked out of it. And I th I, it just struck me. I was like, dang, I mean, that hurts to see that. What can I do about it? And I thought, well, I, I could do something about it, but something's going to happen. <laughs> you're you're going you're gonna to get involved in another person's life. And then out of that, something's going to happen. All of a sudden, you're running a bus and a shelter and social services and helping single moms fill out their um, employment stuff and get their benefits and babysitting for their, their four kids so they can begin to have a life again. It's like, it never stops. And that is the marvelous and amazing thing about this question. What do you want? You answer that from your heart. You can expect the, the math to turn into multiplication, you can expect God to interact in that answer. Even if it is an answer of self, God, I am broken. I struggle with depression. I've been on Prozac for seven years. I would really like this thorn in my flesh to be removed. Now, I use that and, you know, God didn't take Paul's away, but he might take yours away. We don't, we don't understand this stuff. It's not math. What it is is beautiful. It's the energy of God interacting with the will of his people. It's just amazing. I was talking to uh, Todd and got a sound check this morning and about his wife and their work in Kenya. And I just read, I just prayed three days ago for Kenya. Do you guys know what's happening there? I mean, like the drought has compounded the misery of this place to the point where millions of people are starving to death and are malnourished. And it is a knockoff effect rumbling through sub-Saharan Africa. We're talking about millions of people dying because they don't have food while we take it for granted. And I'm like, God, I don't know what to do, but I'm here. Help me. I'll do whatever. How can I help? And, uh, and Todd and his wife got pulled into Kenya and got involved in all this stuff. And that's how it works. It's God saying, what do you want? What actually do you want? What do you really want from me? What are we going to do with this life? What is our purpose? What do you want? <laughs> I want 
500,000 internally displaced people, all of their children to be in school, have access to health care, and not be shot at and be under shelter. That's the next slide. 520,000 children today in the ethnic states in Myanmar displaced because of war since February. There's a coup in February. It doesn't even make the news. I bet almost none of you know about this because it just it's boring. It's the oldest civil war on the planet. But now, like, it's not just ground troops coming into villages and burning them down. It's MiG jets flying into civilian rice-growing, no electricity, no running water, no gasoline-powered engines, no nothing, the middle of nowhere, living off of the fruit of their labors and them getting bombed to smithereens. And they run off in the jungle and hide under whatever they can and in caves and in whatever. That number is a real number today, since February, 520,000 children displaced by the war in the ethnic states of Myanmar. So then I get to the next number, and uh, it gets bigger. My wife and I got involved in Ukraine uh, after the war, and it was an accident, actually, if you believe in those. <laughs> um, we got invited to help at a shelter that was run by a pastor who decided that his church was better used to provide a place for people to sleep who were running from the ground troops in the east and the attacks in the east in Ukraine. And so this shelter just got overwhelmed with people headed to the border of Poland, needing a place to sleep for one, two, or three nights. And the guy wasn't prepared or handling it and and we ended up we raised our hands and we got selected and we we went to, we went to help there and as soon as we got to the to to Ukraine we understood the scale of violence we understood how children are are suffering because of the war directly and because of the uh, impacts of the war like half your day in a bomb shelter listening to an air raid siren siren the 700 and uh, 7.5 million children this is a unesco number are in ukraine today facing extreme violence deprivation and inadequate services lots of them are living in temporary shelters set up by communities and by their government living off of handouts and now as winter approaches they don't have heat our contact there. I was just there uh, two weeks ago. And our good friends there sent me a picture of him and his wife with candles burning. And they'd put their kids to sleep. And they said, it's getting cold. We haven't had power in two days. Because Russia's blowing up all the substations and all the power generation f facilities. It's getting cold there. I want 7.5 million children to be warm in their homes to be cared for, to have their mental health challenges addressed, to, to, to have access to education and health care and the things that my daughters took for granted when they grew up. I want all of them to have that. Is that too big to ask for? I mean, Bartimaeus asked for his sight. That feels like a big ask. So I feel like I'm okay asking for 7.5 million. What do you guys think? Okay, now I'm going to challenge you a little bit. The next slide is a bigger number. This is how many children worldwide are displaced because of war today. 
450 million. 36.5 million of them were displaced just in 2022. 450 million. And see, we are in fact connected. Their lives do matter to us. This, we're all a part of this human family experiment together if we believe in God. And those children that suffer deserve our attention. I don't want to turn this into a guilt trip or some kind of manipulation because it is just as important to help Betty who needs your help filling out her employment paperwork, this single mom with three children. It's just as important to say yes, to say to God when, he, when Jesus says, what do you want? Say, I want to do something about this homeless problem that is supposedly unsolvable. How many times have you tried to do something and someone said, not possible? That's the story of my wife and my life. <laughs> that one girl that we started with, where are you going to get the money? Who made you an expert in early childhood trauma? What do you think you're doing getting involved with refugees? That's the UN's job. Who do you think you are uh, going in and, and learning the ropes of how to get involved in sustainable solutions to education and health care? What makes you think you have what it takes and how are you going to pay for it? And I was like, gosh, I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. That's for sure. <laughs> and number two, I know I don't have what it takes, but I have a mind and I like to read and I like to talk. So let's figure it out. Well, if I have to go back to school, I will, whatever. And that's how it is for all of us. This is what we all have in common. We're all here today with God, the form of Jesus, the incarnation saying, as though we are Bartimaeus, what do you want? And he's, he's charged, man. He's right there, right beside you, no matter how broken you are. And here's the other crazy thing. Are you broken? Anybody like having a hard time in life? I want to tell you the greatest medicine there is. In your brokenness, help people. It is amazing medicine, no matter how broken you are. And if I had a lot of time, I would get into real stories about this. I promise you, when you start giving, when you start reaching out, the problems that you feel you have pale because you're being a constructive part of the human story, of God's story in the world. You are, in a word, becoming the incarnation. You're the only Jesus the world will ever see. And when you act like him, the world is blown away. And all of a sudden, without even understanding what's going on or the psychological drivers or the stoic philosophy that stands behind my statement, you are happy. I promise. <laughs> and, and, and even if you have a breakdown like I've had one, my wife would allege two. And, and even if you, you're off 50000 next month and you can't make your obligations, you can't make payroll, you can't make it, you've grown too big too fast, what am I going to do? And, and, and even if your family says you're nuts, we don't want anything to do with us, don't talk about it anymore. Even if your peers say that this is not acceptable, I've been in a church where they say don't bring homeless people in here anymore. No matter what happens, that's not the question, <laughs> is it? <laughs> I'm blind Bartimaeus. I'm holding on. I am tenacious. I will not let you out of this, Jesus. You don't get out alive. <laughs> I need your help. 
And, and this is what I believe in, these kids. This is what my life has turned into. I want all 450 million kids who suffer because of war today to know that they're loved and not forgotten in the form of nutritious food, mental health care, education, and access to physical health care. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, if you go to the next slide, please. Uh, three days ago, this little boy hit Twitter. His name's Bogdan. And this story is just a means of illustrating the context of what's happening in Ukraine right now. Three days ago, this happened. It was posted by the police uh, in his uh, state. They found out that Bogdan, an eight-year-old little boy, uh, was uh, with his family under attack by Russian shells coming in, artillery coming in. And where they were got hit with a direct hit. His mother and father got blown up and killed, and he survived. He ran to a neighbor, got a bicycle, and took off on his bicycle. His mother was seven months pregnant, by the way. This happened three days ago. Rode on his bicycle some, somewhere, found people. People managed to get a hold of the police. The police, he was in a war zone, active conflict. The police got together their canine dog and these guys, and uh, they drove in to where Bogdan allegedly was, and they found him, and they rescued him, and they took him out. This is the canine search dog that was with him. His name's Eva, if you're interested. This is the story of Bogdan. His mom and dad were left exposed for days because they couldn't get to them. It was under... Uh, uh, artillery, uh, artillery attack for days and they couldn't get the bodies. Eventually they got the bodies and, and gave them a proper burial. Just think about what Bogdan gets to deal with now. He's eight. He's an orphan. He's waiting for his aunt to come. We worked with the orphan um, system in Ukraine and it's a lot of work to do there, you guys. And, and uh, this little boy is uh, he's got a road ahead of him, and, but there's tools to help him. If somebody could just help him, there's ways for him to regulate and get out of this trauma, ways for him to make sense of the pain that he has experienced, even the loss, the terrible loss of his family. He doesn't have to end up spiraling into drug, alcohol, and depression. He doesn't have to spiral out into dictatorship, serial killer, or suicider. He could go green and really be a functioning and beautiful part of our family, Bogdan. And if you go to the next slide, this is Helene. Uh, my wife and my team met her. She was in a village just outside of uh, Kiev where uh, Russian ground troops lived and basically destroyed everything. Um, Helene was, as soon as we walked in, just like Ukrainian grandmothers, she pulled out of her broken refrigerator uh, a bottle of uh, like Kool-Aid and poured us drinks. Now, we're standing in her kitchen right now. There's no roof over our head. Can you go to the next slide, please? Okay, this is, this is where we met Helen. I videoed myself walking through where we were standing pray, praying for her. Try to take this in.
tanks came into her village and deliberately ran over every car that wasn't off the road, which was most cars, deliberately. When they saw a person, they deliberately ran them over, not once, multiple times. They left them out in the road. They, um, they ate their pets. One of the grievances Helen expressed was they ate her dog, these uh, Russian ground troops. They raped their neighbors. The reason that her house is the mess that it is is because after they came in, Ru Russian artillery blew up the village and blew the roof off her house. Her and her son were working that day to clean it up so that they could repair it because winter's coming. Not only do they not have a roof, their gas system's broken so they can't produce heat. They don't know what they're going to do. And if you go back to the last slide, you can see how she, she, she wept. We stood with her while she wept. We put our arms around her and told her we care and we're sorry. We're doing everything we can. She said when the Russians came to her village, her and her son ran into a root cellar. The root cellar door was also blown off by the explosion, but they had a blanket hanging over it. No lights in the root cellar, no water. They hid down there, if I remember correctly, for eight days in seven below zero weather, no water, no food. Her son would sneak out of the root cellar at night to, to, to scavenge for food and then go back into the root cellar uh, and stay there for these eight days. During the Russian occupation, her nearest neighbor also got killed. And if you, you can see in her face, she's telling us a story that just happened, a story that every child experienced in this village, but we can't ask them to tell that story. That's a way of amplifying their trauma again. But Helen was very quick to start telling us what happened. We gave her our last hundred dollars. It's all we had left and said, we're sorry for what happened. And we prayed for her and left. If you could go to the next slide, please. There's my wife there. Um, so here's our big idea. When Jesus asked me what I want, I want kids to, what are kids anyhow? What are these little humans that we bring into the world? <laughs> well, in a word, they're the future. And um, I've largely given up hope that adults are going to wage peace in the world. My 31 years of experience suggests that we adults have um, biologically, hormonally hardwired grievances that are tribal which lead us to hate the one who did something to us. And to get in under that and for that to be made into awareness so that a person instead of hating could be loving is a, a mammoth work. But if we could get to the children and help children understand how they are loved and, get, and, and, and arrive with the tools to help them begin to find their way through this process of integration, of reconciliation. I have a lot of hope for the children. That's why 450 million children lights a fire in me. That's the future peace of the world. That's the hope I have in the world. God, in and through 450 million growing children who have not just recovered and survived from war, but are equipped with the tools to actually live a peaceful and make peace in the world. So one of the tools we do was happening this night. Um, it's called uh, tr uh, 
helping hands where we, with children, that's Dennis. Can you go back, please? These children, we uh, ask them to identify their emotions, four basic emotions, anger, fear, uh, anger, fear, uh, happiness, sadness. Those are the four. So we have a psychologist here, and um, she knows that there are four basic emotions, which I just learned last month. And everything else is a combination of those or a thought. That's what I learned last month. (laughs) And um, so this activity called uh, Helping Hands helps the children think about where these emotions, how these emotions feel, and then identify where on their body they appear. And then they write, we, we help them draw a picture of themselves, we outline them, and then they color that picture. You can see on the back wall there, they color that picture for an hour listening to Bach, and it's really cool and peaceful. And then after that, we say, now write the emotions beside your body and draw an arrow to the places in your body where they hit you, where you feel them. And it's super fun because three-year-olds are like, ooh, I feel it here, I feel it here, I feel it here. It's really fun. And, um, and they're laughing and they're, they're enjoying this. And then we say, okay, now we've got these green hands, these cut-out hands, right on the hands, um, what helps when you have these emotions? Um, what helps? It's, it's uh, talking with my best friend. It's dancing, listening to music, playing a game, finding grandma, walking my dog. They write this on these green hands and then glue it to their body uh, places where this, these emotions take place. And you can see that there. And then we give them hearts. And the hearts are another step saying, who helps? Who is it that helps you when you have these challenging feelings? And almost all of them said mama. Mom, mom's the helper. Some of them said, said grandma or grandpa or um, my best friend. The teenagers always say my best friend. So th- then they glue that next to the hands, right? And at the end, the children describe their picture to their peers and why they wrote what they wrote. And at the very end, the parents come and the children present the picture and what they have Uh, found through this exercise to their parents. And you guys, it's incredible. It's a super simple regulation tool that a non-practitioner can do. And it brings out all of this energy in the kids. And we heard kids telling their parents, mom, you can't believe what we did tonight. We did this thing where we talked about our emotions and our feelings and I have these and these, this is what helps. And I wish we had our dog back because we left him back in Zaporozhia and, and he was the one who helped me. But anyhow, I have these other helping hands. And you know, when I did the heart, you know who I wrote, mom, who helps me? It's you, mama. It's a four-year-old little girl saying that on the phone. <laughs> I was like, wow. What happens to kids in a war zone? They shut down. You know, the adults are tired and broken. They, t- they, they can't take it. They're telling the kids to pick up their phone or their iPad or, or their tablet and play games all day. They don't have anything to do. They're in shelters. They're in and out of bomb shelters. They have nothing to do. We can come in with this simple tool and give them a way to talk about emotions and how those could be regulated. Not only that, but bridge the gap between their tender hearts and their parents. It's just amazing and beautiful. So um, if you go to the next slide, please. This is Dennis. 
Um, just a short, and I'm out of time, anecdote. Uh, Dennis is holding vitamins, which we uh, provided for uh, 4,223 kids. Micronutrients is something kids who don't have adequate diets need. So it's not like diet vitamin saves the world, but in their case, they need it. So, um, so uh, uh, Dennis um, speaks fluent English, learned it on his iPad. I think he's on the spectrum somewhere. He's got awkward social interactions, but he's brilliant. And he's learning uh, computer programming through an app that you guys would probably know, but I can't remember. And, um, and Dennis uh, became our friend, and he said, uh, our, our town got attacked. Um, bombs landed outside my house. My mom threw, threw me on the floor and threw a bed over me. Another bomb landed outside our house, and there was a bolted trash can, a steel large trash can on the street, and the bomb blew that trash can up, out, up and the trash can threw, flew through our window, landed in our house. My mom grabbed my, her, he's got two siblings, grabbed us, ran down into the cellar and hid for eight days before they were rescued. They, every single kid in the shelters has this story, and it's like two million kids in those shelters. And we have access to them. We can reach them. We can show them that they're loved and not forgotten. We can show them this, this sight-giving energy that comes from God when he says, what do you want? You say, I want that. <laughs> I want that. I want Dennis. I want him to understand how much you care. Um, if you go to the final slide, please. Oh, that's my um, lame selfie. Uh, so a talk like this can be understood as, and, and can indeed be demotivating because you think, well, I could never do that or these numbers are too big or this international stuff and even maybe the trauma talk about mental health and you know, whatever. It all sounds a bit large to even think about. But that's not how we started and that was my point. And Jesus came to me and he said, what do you want? And I said, I want this one little girl. And at the time, I was living on between five and $700 a month working with Youth with a Mission. And, um, and we said, what's, what's that going to cost? And Rose, we calculated the cost. It was $30. So our yes started with $30. Our yes started with one child. Just like your yes might start with the person next to you or the person on the street or the person um, running the immigration center downtown, or it may be that you've cho you choose some war that's happening like in, um, what's north of Kenya? Um, Zimbabwe, not, oh, that's south. <laughs> Anyhow, there's wars going on all over the world right now and more people displaced than ever. And, and I would like to propose that you choose one and ask yourself, could this be what I ask God for? We all need someone bigger than ourselves to hold on to, and that's God. We need him. He's, that's the, the clear math. Whether he heals you or not, or gives you a million dollars or not, we need that. We need him. We also need something outside of ourselves that we live for, that we give, that we, we act in the incarnate love of God. As the incarnation, we embody that love and act on it. That's the meaning of our life. Know that you're loved and know that that love fills you and overflows and use that love to change the world around you. 
So I highly advise that you ask the question to yourself. Imagine Jesus asking you, what do you want? I promise you that there are good times ahead when you answer that question with, I want to do something that you, that, that you believe in. I want to do something in this world that changes the deal. I want to do something with my relative wealth that helps those starving children in Kenya or Sudan or Eritrea or Ethiopia. I want to do something in the ethnic states of Myanmar or about the war that's happening in Syria or the genocide that has happened to the Rohingya or the Yazidi or all of these people all around the world that we're bombarded with. Don't get bombarded and say, well, there's too much because that's really a way of saying, I'll keep doing nothing. Just pick one out. Just pick something out and say, I can do one. I can do something. I can make this difference in the life of this thing or this person or this event. This is me receiving my sight out of blindness, me understanding that God is with me. And brothers and sisters, he is with you. Uh, All our contact details are there. Um, There's a girl from... Novi, Michigan here, and I brought a shirt that says Novi. This is what we gave to all the kids, and this is for you. I know you're from Novi. I didn't know Novi is a name of a place. I knew that it was Latin for new. That's all, so sorry about that. And I I have one medium black shirt that anyone who says they're medium can have. Um, So thank you very much. God bless you. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.